Wow, it's, uh, it is so great to be here. Um, <clears throat> you guys don't talk for very long with each other. I'm usually, we're usually at the men's center where I work at at the shepherd's house when I give them a break. Uh, it usually has to be 15 minutes. They have to go out and smoke and come back. So the fact you gave me 30 seconds, I wasn't ready for that. So usually they get a break, they come back. So it's so good to be here this morning. Isn't it good? I think it's just really good to be someplace where we can be together with common heart. Um, worship is, the worship's great. I gotta tell you, it, I just love coming here. The worship's good, um, breaks up hard soil. I've been down in Phoenix and Tucson area working with Grace Network International. I keep wanting to turn over here because I feel so bad for these folks. Uh, this, is the, this must be the copper tone section is what I call it over here. That's very good. Um, so if I do that, it's only because I'm not used to the fact they're seeing me on the screen over there. So um, uh, and so, talking about screens real quick, since I've got open, open parentheses, uh, I want to say hi to my wife. She's in Bend, Oregon. Uh, we're going to have a baby in about seven weeks, seven and a half weeks. And so, yeah, uh, we've been working on that for about four years and, uh, in vitro fertilization, uh, came through for us. I know that's not the case for everybody, but we're really, really thankful with humble hearts to say that God, uh, really uh, was merciful and kind, and so we're, we're super excited about that. And uh, so, hi, hi, Ashley, hi. So there you go, so there you go. So, well, <clears throat> so there's a verse I wanted to open up with. It uh, comes out of Luke chapter 23, and it says, uh, just really simply, Jesus said to them, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. I don't know if there's a more apt verse to talk about most of my life, and is the fact that, you know, on my best day, I'm making it up as I go along. You know, I, as much as I may know the scriptures and work amongst men in recovery and programs and all that, I have to be honest with you, um, hand on heart. If it wasn't for grace, I'd be a mess. Because I have grace, I can tell you, I'm a mess. <laughs> I'm sitting here today because uh, down in Phoenix, we were there, and it's a, it felt like it was about 417 degrees. Uh, I think I'm, it, it probably was uh, down there last week. And I'm just not used to the fact you go from 115 degrees and you go in a room where they turn the AC down to about 37. And so... <laughs> Uh, anyways, I'm all clogged up, <clears throat> so I'm a mess, just a complete mess, but it's okay. If you're a mess here this morning, uh, you're, you're going to be my best friend. If you're not a mess this morning, then hang around us for a while. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll give you the confidence to admit, admit it, because here's the thing. Being a mess is the entry point into the kingdom. This is a messy job that we do. It really, really is. Doing life together, it's just so, it's so frustrating. It's so confusing. Uh, things change all the time. Sometimes you have to wear masks. Sometimes you don't. Can we talk about that here? Can we talk about masks here? I've watched enough of Matt's messages, I know. So, um, yeah, it's just crazy. Um, the other thing I need to share with you about being a mess is that I've been going to a speech therapist. I haven't been to a speech therapist for a long, long time, not since middle school, and um, because I, I stutter, I have a disfluency problem or a fluency problem, I guess. Um, and so 
I have a tendency to stutter. <clears throat> now, many of you may not know that because I've been here a number of times and you said, Mike, I didn't know you stuttered. Well, the thing about stuttering is really interesting. If you have a fluency problem um, like stuttering, you, uh, you more than likely have three times the vocabulary of the average person. It's not because we're ultra smart, but it's because we know that when we have certain words that we come up against, we have a tendency to grab other words from our back pocket, throw them in there so we can communicate, right? So the ah sounds are really tough for me. So I'm a part of a 12-step recovery group called Al-Anon. I've been practicing that all week for you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Al-Anon. Uh, and... And so, but we have a way of pulling in words to kind of dodge the hard places. So you never know that I stutter. I work really, really hard to hide the places that I'm embarrassed and ashamed of. Work really hard to make you think that I've got my stuff together and that, quote, I'm a great speaker and I got something important to say and that maybe you'd be willing to sit for 25, 30 minutes and listen. So I feel like I have to really present well but on the inside, I'm terrified if you find out that if I stutter, and I don't like watching my own video because when it does come out and I see it, I'm like, oh. So my therapist, who, um, when I first met her, I thought she might be 13. Uh, they're getting younger. <laughs> she, uh, she said, well, what we're gonna do, Mike, is we're gonna get you to just talk in straight lines. You don't have to weave around all of the hurt you can go through the hurt and find out if people really knew me and knew everything about me, they may not leave like I'm afraid of and they may not abandon me like people may have in the past. We spend a lot of time bobbing and weaving around our stuff so that people will continue. Oh man, that is the biggest spider. There is a huge spider right now. Oh my gosh, it's got babies. <laughs> All right. <laughs> For my animal lovers here, know that it was a Christian, I sent it to Jesus. So. <laughs> All right. I, I'm, I'm not lying. That's, I didn't make that up. There it is right there. That is a big thing. You're like, Mike, where? all right. That was a first for me. Um, okay. I should get a few extra minutes of teaching just because I was not ready for that. All right. So <clears throat> my stuttering doesn't come from genetics because I don't know of anyone in my family, my parents or uh, relatives that um, stutter. That, uh, that doesn't mean maybe they were doing really well like I was and they avoided it. But uh, stuttering can be passed down genetically. My youngest son has a problem with stuttering. He used to. He's a lot better now. Uh, but I don't know where Mike came from until I talked to my therapist. And she says, well, you know, Mike, stuttering doesn't just come from genetics. It also comes from childhood trauma. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to talk about this. And she's like, well, you know, let's talk. So we're going to talk about trauma this morning. We're going to talk about hurt. And so I just want everyone to kind of settle in for a bit, and I'm going to pray for us, because my prayer is that you'll stay present for the next... Oh, how much time do I have? How far do I go till? Please don't say it doesn't matter, because the children's ministry would argue otherwise. Um, 
Do I go till 10, 10 o'clock, 1005? 10.25? That can't be right. Really? Oh, those 7.30 people are getting gypped. All right, so... All right. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, um, so I'm going to pray for us. So, Father, this morning, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for my friends here. Um, and God, what we're going to talk about is pretty heavy. But I highly doubt that people woke up this morning, showered, got dressed, and came down here so they can walk into these rooms to leave just the way they came in. But Father, we want to be changed and renewed. But we don't get that on the cheap, God. We know that. That means we got to dig into the stuff. And so, Father, I pray right now that some of the things I'm going to talk about are, they're not hypotheticals to them. That they're carrying around a lot of pain and a lot of trauma. And... Um, and I just want to pray for their precious little hearts right now. Ask that your grace would be more than sufficient, that you would, as Ephesians 1 says, you would lavish grace on us this morning as we enter, this, enter into this. Lord, help us to be gentle with ourselves. Be relentless in your tenderness to us. And rock bottom, God. We just want to be known and loved for who we are and for who we're not. Amen. So <clears throat> Kaiser Permanente in the mid-'80s put together a test. It was called an Adverse Childhood Experience Test, called an ACE test. And there were 10 basic questions that were pulled together. So what I want to do is we're going to go through this survey real quickly. And um, you do not have to tell anybody what your score is, uh, but what I would ask is that you kind of have your fingers ready, right? And, I, and you can just kind of count on your fingers. Only 10 of them, so you only have to have 10 fingers. And uh, if you have that, you qualify. If not, okay, throw your toes in. But we, um, <clears throat> we're going to work on 10 questions, okay? And uh, so here we go. Number one. If you've experienced physical abuse in your formative years growing up, that's a finger. If you experience sexual abuse in your life, that's a finger. If you grew up in a home where there was emotional or verbal abuse, that would be another. If you experience physical neglect in your home, meaning you were one of those latchkey kids, you were home alone a lot. That'd be another one. Number five, emotional neglect. If you experienced being alone in your home, not being heard. Number six, if you were exposed to domestic violence, if you saw your mom get beat up or a brother and sister get abused, if you lived in a home where substance abuse was a reality to you, if you grew up in an alcoholic home, 
or you saw drug use in your home. Number eight, if you had household mental illness, if you had uh, someone in your family that struggled with bipolar, schizophrenia, um, depression. Um, number nine, if you grew up in a home where a family member was in prison. And number 10, uh, loss of a parent due to separation, divorce, or death. Okay, so you've got your number. So sit on that number for a bit. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna share with you an article I came across. It's called Resurrecting Therapy. And um, <clears throat> I'm gonna read to you a little bit about what they're coming up with, what the research is telling us, okay? So here's the backdrop. It started when a, stress, a frustrated physician in San Diego, California asked a patient an unusual question. <clears throat> it was 1985 and Vincent Villetti was running an obesity clinic, and although most of the patients did lose weight, some dropping 100 pounds or more, he found that half of them would abruptly drop out of the program. Puzzled, he wondered why people would simply vanish when they were doing so well with weight loss. The answer came when he was <clears throat> interviewing a woman to understand her history. He asked how much she'd weighed at birth um, in first grade, so how much she weighed at birth in first grade and at graduation. But when he asked her, how much did you weigh when you, were first, when you first became sexually active, she blurted 40 pounds. Confused, he repeated the question. Again, this is 1985. Confused, he repeated the question, and she burst into tears. 40 pounds. I was four years old when my father raped me. Well, this stunned him. Like so many of us, he had been taught that incest was extremely rare. In 23 years of practice, he believed he'd seen only maybe one other case. Still, he and his colleagues started interviewing other people in the clinic who were 300 and 400 pounds, and they found that the majority of them, the majority of them had been sexually abused. At the time, this was a shocking finding. So he teamed up with Robert Anada of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and designed a survey given to more than 17,000 members of the Kaiser Permanente HMO, which is what you just took, that survey. After all of their surveys, three-fourths of the people they questioned, the same questions you just had, three-fourths of them uh, had been to college, were holding down good jobs, accessing good health care, and living one of the most affluent cities in the United States. When the results came back from their surveys, however, Anda was so shocked that he wept. The group was harboring much more pain than he had ever imagined. Two-thirds, 17,000, two-thirds had experienced some form of abuse or parental dysfunction, and most of them had survived multiple traumas. Many with alcoholic fathers had not only experienced emotional abuse, but witnessed their fathers physically abusing their mothers. With a 15-year follow-up, the research team has gathered more, more data and have produced over 60 papers in prominent medical journals um, that link uh, the link between childhood trauma and depression in adulthood. Here, listen to this. 
Someone fortunate enough to have grown up in an emotionally healthy home. So if you grew up as a normie, is what we call it in the recovery world. If you're a normie, you have an 18% chance of developing depression by middle age. But having just one adverse childhood experience, if one of your fingers tingled, boosted the risk by 50%. Two boosted the risk by 84%. And people who had five or more aces, five or more fingers, had a 340% greater risk of developing depression than someone who had grown up in an emotionally healthy environment. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. Suicide attempts follow closely behind cases of severe depression. People who had experienced no childhood traumas had a 1% chance of attempting suicide as adults. But for every childhood trauma experience, that percentage increased. People who had seven or more traumas were 36 times likelier to attempt suicide than those who had none. Ultimately, the data showed that two-thirds of all suicide attempts were linked to trauma in childhood. If you're here today and you've got seven of those fingers tingling, you are a miracle that you're sitting in this room right now. If you've experienced physical abuse, sexual abuse, and domestic violence, they found that people who had grown up with all of those three were 26, more, 26 times more likely to attempt suicide. This pattern holds true for bipolar disorder, a condition widely considered to be chemically induced. Uh, but they're finding out that that's not the case. In fact, a massive meta-analysis published in Schizophrenia Bulletin by Filippo Verse and others found that people with childhood trauma were three times likelier to develop schizophrenia than those who had none. Major studies in the U.S. and Britain found that having five traumas increased the risk of having symptoms of schizophrenia between 53 and 160 times. The vast majority of people that are homeless, that are living out on the streets today, are folks that have experienced childhood trauma in their life, and they're experiencing it in their mental health. Forgive them, Father. They don't know why they do what they do. But it's not just emotional and it's not just psychological. We're finding that it's actually in our bodies. Bessel van der Kolk has a great book out there if you're interested in this kind of research called The Body Keeps the Score. And we're finding that emotional trauma, physical trauma that happens at a childhood age in your developmental years affects us in our body. Let me give you some numbers here. In fact, when people, um, when people have four or more childhood traumas, they're more than two times likelier to smoke, five times likelier to use illegal drugs, almost seven and a half times likelier to abuse alcohol, and 10 times likelier to inject drugs as someone who has had no traumas. There are also 30% likelier to be sedentary and 60% likelier to be severely obese. These are huge numbers. I can go on and on and on. Have I made my point here on this? Guys, if you've got fingers that are tingling right now, I am so sorry that that happened to you. And I cannot even imagine the amount of pain that you carry in your day-to-day -day life.
And if you're here and you're like, Mike, listen, I come to church and I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying, but I got this going on in my life and this going on in my life and this going on and that going on and I can't stop doing this and I find myself always doing that and I'm always picking up this and I'm always watching that. I'm always eating this and I just keep, and I don't wanna do it. I hate myself. I hate what I've become, but I don't know who to tell to, I don't know who to talk to about it. I don't know where to share this. It seems like when I come to church, everybody seems to be doing great. But on the inside, if I could just stand up and go, Man, I have no idea what I'm doing. I am trying so hard to be a mom or a dad and a daughter and a friend and a neighbor and a Sunday school teacher. I I just, if people really knew what I was going through, if people really knew what's been done to me or what I've done to others, they would abandon me, they would leave me because that's what everybody else has done. And if I'm talking to you this morning, if that's your heart, Hey, welcome to the kingdom. In fact, right now, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to turn to the person next to you and say, hey, I'm so glad you're here this morning. Just let, let them know that right now. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. I really am. I am so glad you're here. Now, you may not be. You're like, whoa, all right, where's the exit? This got really serious. So what are we to do with this? Are we just broken people that are just gonna be messed up the rest of our lives? I mean, what do we do with all this hurt and trauma? I mean, we've come to Jesus, we've been baptized 19 times, but we still have the memories. You know, some of you, man, you just want, you want Matt to start practicing exorcisms. Maybe that'll work, right? Come up. But it's interesting, right, that Jesus seems to take away the penalty and the fear that comes with sin, but somehow God has left us with the memories. What's that about? So I want to give you two, two stories. Two, 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 I can say this, two stories this morning from the Bible, because you're like, Mike, aren't we going to get into the Bible? <clears throat> yes. Glad you asked. Uh, first one is Acts chapter 9. Go to Acts chapter 9. I'm going to show you a story of a broken person. So this guy named Saul is living out to the best of his ability his view of life. Saul in chapter 9 says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing murderous threats out against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Here's the one thing about Saul you gotta give him credit for. That guy's a go-getter, literally. It's powerful. Here's the one thing about the Lord, if you don't know this yet, just because he's redeemed you doesn't mean he's gonna necessarily change you. You know why? He likes you the way you are. Uh, he's just going to tweak the direction you're going, right? So if you're an addict right now, just understand God's never going to stop you from being addicted. He's just going to change what you're addicted to. He loves the fact you're addicted. We're just going to change the direction. It's like the Energizer Bunny. Some of you are really good at blowing up your life. God's like, man, you got so much energy. We're just going to take that and tweak it a bit. Last thing he's going to do is emasculate you. He just wants to just, hey, and this is what he does with Saul. He's like, man, Saul, you're pretty good at what you do. 
Like you're, a, you're like really passionate. So, so Paul's, or Saul's on his way. He's gonna go pick up some Christians, haul them off to jail. And he's on his way to Damascus. And it says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, what are you doing, man? Why are you persecuting me? Now you gotta hear that with the love of the Lord, right? This is not someone, here's the thing about Jesus, right? He, he's a pretty cool guy. Forgive him, Father, Father, for they know not what they what? They don't know why. He doesn't know, he doesn't even know why he's doing this. So Jesus doesn't take it personally. He's like, hey man, what are you doing? Well, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Well, <laughs> of course, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what to do. So the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up <clears throat> from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind and did not eat anything or drink anything. So Saul is just going to town and gets knocked off his horse, has this experience with God, and God says, hey, pretty much everything you've thought was good and right is actually the opposite. Like you thought you were doing everything good, but the fact is, is that you've just been, you haven't been loving me, you've actually been kind of persecuting me. I mean, could you imagine if somehow one day you're driving to In-N-Out Burger, you know, and all of a sudden you just kind of get knocked out of the car and as you're rolling onto the gutter, God just says, hey, Mike, so everything you've been teaching like at Edgewater, that's like totally wrong. What? Yeah, in fact, everything you've lived for up to this point, yeah, that's pretty messed up. I gotta tell you what, that would be like, that's like turning my sock inside out, man. I mean, that's like, whoa. And it says for three days, he's blind, he can't see. He doesn't eat and he doesn't drink. Now, here's the thing. The Lord didn't say, hey, Saul, don't eat or drink while you're waiting for Ananias. He just can't. He's so broken. You know, I have worked with men who have worked their life to the best of their ability doing what they think is right for them, which is pretty much all of us. I just want us to know that, right? That pretty much we're all doing the best we can with what we know. Okay, turn to the person next to you and say, hey, you're doing the best you can. Let them know right now because may, they may not believe me, but they may believe you. You're doing the best you can. You really are. You're doing the best you can with what you know. If you knew more, you'd probably do something different, right? <clears throat> you're doing the best you can. This is Saul, and he's like, man, I'm just, my total world is turned upside down. And so he is literally, for three days and three nights, curled up in a ball in Judas's place on Straight Street in the back room, just, just like, my life has fallen apart, I can't see. I mean, he's a mess, he's a mess. Saul's a mess. But he's not the only one. The, the story continues. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street 
and asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. I bet he is, right? In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. I love, I love Ananias. He's one of my favorite dudes. Uh, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. Translation for men at the rescue mission, say, what? You know, it's, what? <laughs> you want me to do what? You want me to go and go, go talk to Darth Vader? Is that what you're wanting here? I've heard about that guy. That guy kills people. In fact, it's my contention, Ananias probably knows people that he killed. Ananias, that was probably some of his friends, people he's talked to, people he loved, family members, right? Ananias said, you want me to do what, Lord? He says, yeah, I just want you to go over, put your hands on him. He's blind right now. He won't hurt you too bad. And uh, put your hands on him. Pray for him. And I was like, ah, oh, gosh, really? He's having a Jonah moment. Man, if I could just get swallowed up by a fish, it'd be great. And, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I love that verse 10 because the Lord's like, listen, He's gonna get his what-uppins, okay? Don't worry about that, Ananias, believe me. But you can go. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. So here's the thing. Could you imagine if, if you're Ananias and you knock on the door, Judas is like, hey, are you Ananias? He's like, yeah. The Lord sent me, he says, yeah, we've been waiting for you. It's like three days. He's in the back there. I don't know how much longer he's got because he hasn't eaten anything, he hasn't drank anything for three days, he's in a really bad way. So Anna and I said, all right. So he goes in, goes to the living room, goes to this back room, knocks on the door, and uh, I don't know if they have doors back then, but I'm gonna assume they did. So they, they come through and say, uh, you can hear Saul say, well, who is it? Hey man, it's, it's Ananias. Come in. So Ananias comes in. And you would expect, at least if I'm Ananias, Darth Vader is this big, lurking, dark figure with a black coke in a helmet, right? Just this big figure, this massive man. You know, I remember when I got to meet my mom's uh ex-husband who was abusive to my brother and I. And I remember him when I was about seven years old when he was using drugs and he would beat up on my brother and I pretty significantly. I met him like 20 years later and when he opened the door, I was expecting to see this big hurricane guy. But by that time, I was in my late 20s and he was, I don't know how old he was, he must have been in his late 60s, how small he was. I can imagine for Ananias... He, uh, he must have thought he was going to walk in the room and see Saul of Tarsus. And instead he sees a man in the fetal position on the ground. It smells in there. If you've ever been to a camp 
where someone has not eaten or drink anything for three days because they're coming off of a bender and they're emaciated. Anyway, Ananias comes in and he sees this man. This is, this, this is Saul of Tarsus? This is the guy that killed my family? My friends, this is the guy. And if there was ever a chance in Ananias' life to fix the problem, this could be it right here. I mean, listen, it wouldn't take much. It'd just be a, and there's no more Saul of Tarsus anymore. We could just, we can end this right now. And I imagine Saul saying something to the effect of Ananias, I... I'm sure there's nothing I say. I just, you can imagine what Saul's saying. And it says here, then Ananias went into the house, placing his hands on Saul. He said, can you imagine? Just Ananias is like, could just do this. I could just. And Saul knows it too. You ever been in a spot where you're so vulnerable that there's a moment in your vulnerability that people could either bring life or they can bring death? By the way, that's what we call trauma when we're vulnerable. Ananias puts his hands. He softens. He puts his hands on Saul. Right on his head, right there. And he says, Brother. You know, at the men's center, uh, we say something that I believe to be true, and that is grace changes everything. No matter how many fingers you have tingling, grace can change everything. So now we flip in our Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Saul has become Paul at this point. Luckily, Ananias didn't kill him. So we've got more Acts to read. And Paul shows up in a place called Corinth. And we read this. It says, and after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome and went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, to testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and, and became abusive, 
He shook his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Interesting. So Paul starts this church in Corinth. He's working part-time, preaching part-time. Aquila, Priscilla show up. He starts preaching full-time at this little church. He starts working in this synagogue, but there's a contingent in the synagogue that want to kill him. They're abusive. They hate the message. They hate what Paul stands for. Probably reminds him a lot of a guy he used to know intimately named Saul. Yeah, I get why you don't like this. Believe me, I know. I was there. But he preaches and preaches and preaches. It's n- nothing's changing. A guy by the name of Sosthenes, we're going to find out later, is really leading this rabble to shut Paul down. And Paul has a really bad day. He must have got back from Phoenix and all clogged up. And he just comes back and goes, listen, I've had enough. I'm done. Blood's on your own heads. This is what I love about Paul. Paul, Paul has temper tantrums from time to time in Scripture. And that's so great because that gives me permission to be real too. Amen? Not that I'm going to have one on you just yet. But... Um, but just know, it's all right. It's all right. He said, fine, I'm going next door. So he starts a church literally next door. Like the Greek word here is they shared an exterior wall. It's like it's a duplex. He just went to the next duplex right there, started teaching the church. And most of the church follows Paul. So Sosthenes and his little gang of guys for the next year and a half are trying to figure out ways to destroy Paul, destroy the church, destroy his message, and probably the same way Saul used to do it. Anything that it takes, Saul gets it. Paul gets it. So it says here that he left the synagogue and, like I said, went next door to the house of of justice, a worshiper of God, started the church there. Uh, Paul's freaking out. You get to verse 9. He says to the Lord, Lord, I don't know if I'm going to make it. These guys are going to kill me. And the Lord says, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent for I'm with you and no one's going to attack you and harm you because I have many people in this city. The Lord wouldn't have said that unless Paul was thinking that like, man, I think, I think these guys are going to, they're, they're going to, they're going to get me bad. He's like, no, it'll be cool. Just keep doing what you're doing. So 11. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them in the word. Well, Sosthenes and crew finally get an inroad in. They take them to court. While Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they argued, is performing or persuading, excuse me, persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. So that's the indictment. So just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said, oh, hold hold on, hold on, Paul. I got this. If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them out. So listen to that. So the judge says, what? You, I'm here for what? You brought me here. You have this whole case because you're saying this guy here is teaching things against your law. I'm a Roman dude. I can care less what you do. Get out. Get out. So Sosthenes and all of his buddies, all of his cronies are made to look pretty embarrassed. They're pretty embarrassed. And they look at Sosthenes and they say, Sosthenes, we've had enough of you. And look what happens. It says right here, he says, they turned on him and uh, then the crowd then turned on Sosthenes, uh, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul and Galileo showed no concern for it. So Sosthenes is pleading his case, his pro-counsel, but you don't understand. He's like, I don't want to understand. Get out. He turns around and Sosthenes gets clocked in the head. 
by one of his, quote, buddies. Then he gets punched in the gut. And then they drag him out of the courtroom and they just start beating the tar out of him, breaking his teeth, pulling out his beard. Bones are broken, kidneys bruised. He's just a mess. His face is bleeding. He's just a mess. And there's Paul. Now, for some of my evangelical friends, when I've told this story, they're like, yes, yes, we won in court. He gets in your face, Austin. He's in your face. Jesus is so good. Jesus is good. Defended us. That's what you get. What you reap, you sow. Start attaching Bible verses. I gotta be honest with you. I'm just gonna stop right here. I'm gonna give you my personal opinion. This is not Edgewater approved, but... When you start stapling Bible verses to your resentments, buckle up. Because you will hear that again. Nah, what happened after that? We, we don't know. See, that's the a, that's a whole part. You know, Luke, for being such a great writer of the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke, there's parts of, you know, if I was the editor, I'd like, hey, send that back. I got to know what happened after that. What happened to that dude Sosthenes? I don't know. But I think I do. Because I remember a Saul just a few pages earlier who was on the ground, broken, beaten, and confused. And there's a Sosthenes who as faithful as he can be to God, doing everything he can, but he's broken, beaten, and confused. And I imagine Paul walked up to Sosthenes after everybody left. Sosthenes there by himself, spitting up blood, laying on the ground. Sosthenes sees the sandals of his archenemy, Paul. And I can imagine Sosthenes said something like this. Fine. Okay. What, what do you want? What do you want from me? I'm doing everything I can. I've worked. I've done everything I thought that was right. So what? And there are certain moments when people are vulnerable where you could speak life or death. And I believe, this is just me, Paul got down. (sighs) Brother. You know, What are we supposed to do with all this trauma we pack around in our life? What are we supposed to do with all these memories of pain and sorrow and hurt? We're able to get down with the broken and hurting and sit with them. We don't have to fix them. You can't fix them. 
but you could put a hand on your shoulder and say, brother, I get it. I get why you're doing what you're doing. I get why you're using, why you're so angry, why you're so scared. I get why you're afraid to share what's really going on. It's terrifying. And I think, I think that's what Paul did. Because I think that's what the kingdom does. I think that's what grace does. You know, Paul didn't stay in Corinth much longer. He went to a little town called Ephesus. And uh, he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church, by the way. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians, you get this little nugget. Just a little nugget. 1 Corinthians 1.1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Anybody see the rest of that verse? And our brother Sosthenes. Maybe it really is true. Grace can change everything. 